0: God's Holy Word, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34, Jeremiah
1: 34, verses 1 through 22. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah king of Judah and say to him, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of Yahweh, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says Yahweh concerning you, You shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares Yahweh. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. When the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and, all, and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Ezekiah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free as Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel... I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you Liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares Yahweh. I will make you a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth, and the men who transgressed my covenant, and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies, for the birds... And into the hand, I will give them into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah king of Judah and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their lives, and into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which is withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares Yahweh, and will bring them back to the city. And they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. This
0: is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. And you are true. You are the God for whom nothing
1: is impossible, and yet it is impossible for you to lie, for that would be for you to act contrary to who you are. Your promises never fail, you are faithful. Your covenant never broken.
0: From your part. Have mercy on us. For the lies we believe. The
1: lies we tell. Our unfaithfulness. Our covenant breaking.
0: Forgive us our sins. And our only plea. Is that all that we
1: failed to do. Christ did on our behalf. And for all of our covenant breaking, he suffered. And so in his name, we ask you have mercy on us now. And speak graciously to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. God is the covenant making God. Man, made in the image of God, not only relates to God covenantally, he also makes covenants Himself. Being made in the image of God means He not only relates to God covenantally, it means He makes covenants Himself. And history has demonstrated in this regard that God is the covenant keeper and man is the covenant breaker. It's who we are covenantally up against who God is covenantally that is our undoing. Because man has broken covenant, you can be assured that God will keep it in in judgment. We broke it, and our breaking it means God will keep it, and He's going to keep it in judgment. And yet, because God keeps covenant, He's also certain to save covenant-breaking sinners. God's being a covenant-keeping God means both man's damnation and salvation. Both. God's being true to His promises, His faithfulness, His fidelity, means both man will be judged and man will be saved. We have two separate words here spoken by Yahweh. A shorter one in verses 1-7, through which focus on King Zedekiah. And then a longer one, verses 8 through 22, which also mentions Zedekiah, but focus on Judah as a whole, especially those free men who possess slaves. And in both instances, God is judging in light of broken covenants. In the second longer section, that's really clear and obvious. In the first one, we'll see how it underlies everything that's happening there. So the first word comes whenever uh, there's war against the city. Nebuchadnezzar has brought his army against Jerusalem and its cities, verse 1. And this word that you see in verses 1 through 7, this is the very word that would land Jeremiah in the slammer. This is why he was kept in the court of the guard, this particular word. And it's unclear, though, when he would have said this word. The siege of Jerusalem happened during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign. And you remember it was interrupted as the uh, king of Babylon turned his attention to deal with the approaching Egyptian army. And then it, it was sometime resumed after that, and ultimately Jerusalem fell during the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. This prophecy could have been spoken either during that initial attack from Zedekiah or the, le- the latter one. All that we know is that this is the word that kept Jeremiah in prison. It wasn't even what got him there in the first place. Whenever Babylon withdrew to deal with the uh, Egyptian army, chapter 37, whenever that happened, Jeremiah had some business to attend to in Babylon, uh, in Benjamin, excuse me, had some business to attend to in Benjamin, and he was falsely accused of deserting to Babylon at that point. And that's why the officials put him in prison. And then later, those same officials will press for him to, they'll toss him in a cistern and press for him to be executed. Now, in all these instances, he keeps getting put, for the most part, into the court of the guard under King Zedekiah's graces. It was, there was some measure of kindness he was shown by Zedekiah. And he's provided for while he's there. But nonetheless, though we see Zedekiah doing this, we know that the reason why Jeremiah is kept there. Not while he was put there, but the reason why he is kept there is this prophecy. And you, can, you get some insight into to why that would be. He, the nature of the prophecy lets you know that Jeremiah, uh, Zedekiah doesn't want to just deal harshly with Jeremiah because what if all this is true? <laughs> and he, at the same time, he doesn't want him out there telling everyone this Same story, because that doesn't really work well in his favor right now. And so in this instance, and we'll see it in the future, Zedekiah, uh, the way he also relates to the officials and tries to keep them happy and appease them, you you, you read the whole story of Zedekiah and he appears much more like a modern politician than some ancient magisterial king. He's trying to play everything both ways, he's trying to do everything in his best interest right in the immediate moment all the time, not really worrying about the ramifications too far ahead. So you also, as you look at the opening statements here, get a sense for the size of force that Nebuchadnezzar is bringing to bear on Jerusalem. All his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominions, all the people's we're fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Now, Judah is not such a threat that it necessitates this force. Nebuchadnezzar's making a statement. He's already beat him up twice, at least. And depending on how you read the accounts in Kings and Chronicles, it could be three times that Nebuchadnezzar has already sacked Jerusalem, if you will. He doesn't need this kind of force. If you remember, uh, after the second time that we know for certain the city fell under Jehoia, uh, Kim, uh, Jehoiachin, excuse me, um, after it fell that second time, Nebuchadnezzar took away seven thousand mighty men of valor. So he's already beat them twice. They're in a much more weakened state. And now he brings what appears to be his largest force yet against the city. What's the deal? Well, I think, one, he's making a statement to Jerusalem. I'm done with you. But two, it's to deal with that Egyptian army. This was something that he was prepared for. At this time, this is the setting. This time, Jeremiah receives this word from Yahweh for Zedekiah, verses 2 through (laughs) 3. It's a gloomy time, and Jeremiah comes bringing even gloomier news. And knowing the rest of the story, knowing that it would be this word that gets Jeremiah kept in prison, you you see that Jeremiah was judged for pronouncing judgment. Jeremiah was judged for pronouncing judgment. And so it isn't today. What gets us canceled today, what gets Christians persecuted today, is not so much narrowly preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. It's preaching the judgment that's necessarily entailed in preaching that good news. That we were deserving of condemnation and Jesus bore that judgment in our place. So when you preach the good news, you have to preach the judgment. And it's the judgment aspect that really rubs we don't often get to evangelize kings, but we get the same kind of retort that I think is understood in all of this. Who are you to judge me? And they don't understand that whenever they said that, they've pronounced judgment. Jeremiah is imprisoned, he's judged for pronouncing judgment. And whenever we pronounce judgment and we're judged for it, they just... Did the same thing. The difference is we're pronouncing judgment as we bow the knee to the king. They're pronouncing judgment as they're acting like kings, demanding we bow the knee to them. There's a king, and the, the, the question to answer is, who is it? And in this, it's always funny that you get accused of pride and arrogance in this. And the retort to that is, I'm not the one acting like a king. I'm the one wanting to bow before a king. So if any accusation of pride and arrogance can be made in this, it's not of me in this instance. I can be wrong and you can be right. But as far as who's acting prideful and arrogant, it's the person acting like a king in and of themselves. Yahweh says he's giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon who will burn it with fire, verse 2. And this is why it's critical that we listen to the judgment of the prophet and disregard the judgment of kings. Because God judges not just in pronouncing it, but in executing it. He doesn't just pronounce judgment, He executes it on a scale that we can't imagine. He gives cities into the hands of whomever he desires. And he'll not only give the city into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, he'll give Zedekiah into his hand, verse 3. And they'll have a face-to-face and eye-to-eye meeting. And to understand why this is so terrifying, you, you need some background. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 17. Nebuchadnezzar sets one Mattaniah on the throne in Jerusalem and changes his name to Zedekiah. Think of the significance of this. Where do we see name changes happening throughout Scripture? Well, it's whenever God chooses an individual and makes a covenant with them. Zedekiah takes Mattaniah, sets him on the throne, changes his name, and it's said that Zedekiah swore an oath in this, and it was an oath sworn in Yahweh's name. So whenever Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked king of Babylon, he also rebels against Yahweh, the holy king of heaven. Second Chronicles 36.13 He, Zedekiah, also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So it was turning away from uh, Nebuchadnezzar Was a refusing to turn towards Yahweh in repentance. In a vision uh, that Ezekiel, when Yahweh explained a vision that Ezekiel had had, he's explaining it to Ezekiel. He says he Nebuchadnezzar took one of the royal offspring, which would be Zedekiah, and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. Oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might, it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can anyone escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? Ezekiel 17, 13-15. God goes on to say in verse 19 of that chapter, Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, As I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. So the terrifying thing about facing Nebuchadnezzar face to face and eye to eye is this is the king that he entered into covenant with. This is the king that last time he stood face to face with him, he pledged a oath of loyalty before Yahweh. And so last time he faced him, he was making a covenant, and now he's going to face him again as a covenant breaker. And the really scary thing is that in facing Nebuchadnezzar, it is as if he's facing God. He's, he, the, Nebuchadnezzar is the sword, the judgment of God. That's what he's going to have to face. This would prove a horrifying meeting. 2 Kings chapter 25, they captured the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And yet, in light of that, you could be puzzled, there's a word of mercy here pronounced concerning Zedekiah. Yet hear the word of Yahweh, O Zedekiah king of Judah. Thus says Yahweh concerning you. You shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace. Okay, no sword, got that, he's imprisoned. But how does he die in peace? So the quick answer some submit is that this was a conditional promise in the same way that he received the promise earlier that's since been revoked clearly in light of what's said here. But earlier, though it comes later in the the book, earlier God said, Thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, this is chapter 38, verse 17, the God of all Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared. And the city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. That promise has expired. It's not made here. Here it's just said it's going to burn. But you'll die in peace. So some think that this is conditional the same way that earlier word was conditional. I don't think that's necessary and the best explanation. How can then Zedekiah be said to die in peace? Well, you're told the people will lament, Alas, Lord, and there will be an honorary fire made for him. 2nd Chronicles 16:14 tells us that whenever king Asa died, they made this great fire in his honor as they had done for his the, his fathers. In contrast, you get king Jehoram, 2nd Chronicles 21:19 through 20. In the course of time at the end of 2 years his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. So you see how relative to Jehoram, Zedekiah dies in peace. But it's really Jehoiakim's death that provides the contrast here. Jeremiah twenty two eighteen through 19. Thus says Yahweh concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Oh, my brother or all oh, sister, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, oh, Lord. There's a lament promised here for Zedekiah. None for Jehoiakim. With the burial of a donkey he shall be burned. Honorary fire? treated like an unclean dead animal, dragged along the side of the road to rot. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried and dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Zedekiah will die in peace. He will be lamented, honorary fire made on his behalf. And this will happen, verse 5, because Yahweh says so. Zedekiah deserves all judgment. None of this mercy. And the only reason I think we can make any sense of the grace extended here is it's in some way God saying, I'm still showing mercy to the house of David for David's sake, which is to say, for the sake of the covenant that I made with David. Verse 6 brings us back to the setting. This very word, Jeremiah spoke. And he speaks it when Jerusalem is nearly alone, which makes me think this is more likely to have happened during the second Siege. Only Lachish and Ezekiel remain, verse 7. These are the only four fortified cities left. Saints, from this first section, learn this God deals with kings. Jesus is the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords. He's the ruler of rulers. He is the judge of all judges. He gives cities and He gives nations away. Israel enjoyed a special privileged place. And if God so judges them, if He so judges the house of David, will He not deal with nations and rulers who do not enjoy this special status? And remind yourself... Israel is the only nation there has ever been that was established as a theocracy that enjoyed a covenant relationship. We are not immune from this. He gives nations. He gives over rulers. They are in His hands and He can give them into the hands of others. So may kings tremble and may God's people be confident and speak with God. Boldness, not only concerning the nations out there, but with whomever it may be. Now, the next word given in verses 8 through 22 very likely has the longest introductory setting of any word we've come across in Jeremiah, maybe of any that we see in the prophets. Verses 8 through 11 are all just giving you the setting. Zedekiah makes a covenant along with the people. And it's a covenant for a proclamation, an emancipation proclamation of liberty for all Hebrew slaves. Verses 8 and 9. And they obey. They set them free. Twice it's repeated, verse 10. They obey.
0: The officials, eunuchs, the priests, all the people who have slaves, they
1: set them free. Set them free so that they will not be enslaved again. But sometime thereafter this, there is an emancipation revocation. And we'll delve further into the laws concerning slavery in just a bit. But at this point, this much is already established. This action lies far outside. Of the parameters God had established. Concerning slavery in Israel. All slavery in Israel. Concerning their fellow Hebrew. Was one to be voluntarily entered into. By the slave. And here they're putting now men that they have freed. Forcefully back into subjection. This is what the law says concerning this. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 24, 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil... From your midst. But here again. These masters are bringing men that they freed. Into slavery forcefully. They took back the male and female slaves. Verse 11. They had set free. And brought them into subjection. As slaves. And so it's into that setting. That the word of God comes. And he opens by reminding them. Of a covenant He's made, verses 12 through 16. He brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and He made a covenant with them. And so, understandably, because of their redemption, because God redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt, out of this house of slavery, you can understand that His law that He's going to give them is going to speak concerning slavery in light of that. So He tells them in Exodus 21.2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. He's not only to go out for nothing, he's to go out with something. Deuteronomy 15, 12-15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As Yahweh your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. You see the basis of it? The reason you do this is to remember what I did for you. And this law, their fathers ignored. This was largely unpracticed, it appears. And now, they've obeyed. But this generation's temporary obedience doesn't make them more righteous than their father's prolonged disobedience. It actually makes them much worse. And you see this in that they repent of their repentance, for one thing. They did repent, verse 15. They did what was right. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes.
0: Now think how rare a statement that has been in Jeremiah. You did what was right. They had
1: turned from Yahweh. And this is finally an indication of some kind of turning back. But then they turn away again from their turning back. In this repentance, they have entered into covenant before Yahweh, coming before His house. The place where He's made His name to dwell among them. And so, when they turn back and force their fellow Hebrew back into slavery, they not only fall away into sin again, repenting of their repentance, they break covenant and they profane the name in which they entered into that covenant. Covenants are always entered into before God. Even the pagans who enter into any kind of covenant, any kind of contract, anything like that, it's done before God. All our living is done before God, and we'll get into this. Everyone, non-Israelites, everyone, all of us live covenantally before God. All humanity relates to God covenantally. Covenants are explicitly entered into before God, but some, are, all covenants are entered into before God, but some, in some, it's explicitly so, as here. And know that that's the kind of covenant you're under. If, if you are uh, gods and you've covenanted with this church, whenever you were baptized, you were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Covenantally, the name of God was put on you. So to break covenant with the body of Christ into which one is baptized is to break covenant with God. This is no whispered blasphemy. It's a shouted one. It's a continual shouting. Every minute that their slaves remain serving them is a blaspheming of God's name and a breaking of covenant. It's like a wife who by her continuous unrepentant adultery belittles the name which she still bears church we bear the name of christ may we be zealous that it not be profaned by either our lips or our lives and the consequences for this covenant breaking follow in verses 17 through 22 and here we come back to this word obey
0: who who did Judah failed to obey. You might
1: think that it was Zedekiah as he made this proclamation, but Zedekiah is part of those to blame here. Zedekiah made this covenant. Here's a way to, to read this differently. Zedekiah, verse 8, had made a covenant with all the people. so you might think Zedekiah is making a covenant with the people, that those are the two parties. That's not the case. Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people with Yahweh.
0: Who did they not obey? Verse 17, you have not obeyed me. God sets forth the principles in His law
1: upon which they should have made this proclamation and kept it. They've long lived in disobedience to this. And it's right and fitting that now, having long disregarded this, they should free all slaves. Doesn't matter how long they've served. Free all of them, and all the more so in light of the fact that they're soon to be under a foreign power again that all of them are to be subjected to slavery. Because they didn't obey in proclaiming liberty and keeping that, because they have not obeyed by proclaiming liberty, God says, I will proclaim liberty. To the sword, to famine, and to pestilence. And I think God in this is saying a lot more than simply, I'm going to free the sword loose upon you. Whenever God liberated them from Egypt, liberty didn't mean that they were free to live autonomously. Didn't mean they were free to live unto themselves. That's what sin is. That's what bondage is. Freedom means liberty to serve God. In Leviticus 25, and explaining how uh, the slaves were also to be released during the year of Jubilee... These grounds are laid forth. If he is not redeemed by these means, the kinsman redeemer, if he's not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Now the word servant there is really quite lame because it's exactly the same word you have translated as slave in this text, he liberated them from the house of slavery to be his slave. He is their God. So these slaves now, they're all slaves, God's slaves. These slaves, in not liberating their slaves, are rebelling against their master who is so liberally provided for them. And so I think God is saying. You want liberty? I will give you liberty. You're my slaves? You didn't proclaim liberty to your slaves. I proclaim liberty to my slaves. You're free from being mine. And what does that mean? Being free from slavery unto God means being free unto sword, famine, and pestilence. That's what freedom unto yourself means. Turn to live unto yourself and you turn from the God who is life. There's only death. Whenever one jumps off a cliff without a chute, they may have the sensation of being free, of flying, of thrills and joys. But they're not free from the law of gravity. And that sensation will quickly Be over. The freedom of sin is like the liberty of a free fall without a chute, and the result of this pestilence and sword and famine coming upon them is that they're made a horror to all the earth. Verse seventeen: The world will walk by the aftermath of seeing their freedom; they will see the splat that's left, and they will be horrified at the results. And further. Because of their disobedience, verses 18 through 20, they are covenantally cursed. It's not just that inside of the covenant there's blessing, and outside of it there's a curse. The thing is, you can't escape from the realm of covenant. You're either relating to God as a covenant keeper and blessed, or as a covenant breaker and cursed. Our text speaks of covenants being made. The Mosaic Covenant being made, verse 13. This covenant being made in verses 15 through 18. And the word you have as made is the exact same word that you have translated cut in verse 18. So in one place it's translated made in verse 18, the next one cut. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made Before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut. Strictly speaking, the way Scripture talks, covenants are not made, covenants are cut. This even comes into our vernacular today. When we speak of cutting a deal, this is is where that comes from. Whenever God entered into His covenant with Abraham, in its most formal Ceremony, you remember, he instructed Abraham to take the carcasses of a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon and lay them opposite one another. Split them, lay them opposite one another. And then God walks through the carcasses as a manifestation of a smoking fire, a smoking, pot, a burning firebrand in a smoking pot. Here, let me back up. Whenever God does that, normally what would happen is both parties involved in the covenant would walk through the pieces. When God walks through it alone, He's the one making all the promises and He's communicating to Abraham, I will do this. In this instance, it's not God. There's a covenant between God and men again here. But in this instance, it's not God making the promises. It's Judah Making all the promises, and they walk through the pieces. And the significance of this is they're saying, Over my rent body, I make this pledge. It's an image of, May I be cursed as this sacrifice. Before you. And think of how the sacrifices were offered up as a propitiation. A wrath bearing substitute. That's the idea. May I be cursed. If I don't keep the promises of this covenant. And just so they are cursed God says. I will make them like these. This rent carcass. And then. This familiar image of being cursed throughout the book of Jeremiah is used. They will be food, their carcasses, their bodies, food for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. Deuteronomy 28 speaks of the blessings that will come upon Israel if they keep covenant, 14 verses. And then 53 verses follow of covenant curses that will come upon them if they break covenant. One of them, Deuteronomy twenty-eight, twenty-five through 26, is this, or two of them, I guess. You sh- but they relate. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air, for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Dead carcass left for the beast to devour. You remember before that deep sleep came on Abraham for him to awake and see God passing between the parts? He was vigilant to scare off the birds of prey that would land on it. But here a covenant's not being made. Here a covenant's being broken. No one will frighten off the fowl from their cursed dead bodies. And this is to happen as God brings back to the city, verses 20 through 21, 21 through 22. God brings back to the city the Babylonians who have withdrawn. Babylon, which has withdrawn from you, behold, I will command, declares Yahweh, and I will bring them back to the city. And I think with this, you get some insight into what was happening in making this covenant and then breaking it. It appears very likely. This covenant was made while they're under siege. Why would they do that? Well, very likely one motivation was that free men will fight where a slave might turn. I'm already enslaved. Why not take the part of those who are attacking my masters? Then I might have freedom. Whereas if they're free men... (laughs) I'm going into slavery. Slave is not the best ally in war, but I think really the bigger issue probably underneath this all is that a slave was the responsibility of their master. Their food, their health, their well-being, all of that according to God's law was the responsibility of their master. And so while they're under siege, and the way they're dying is by sword Famine and pestilence, why carry around the liability of a slave? More food for me if I'm just concerned about me. Now, slavery, as it was to be practiced according to God's law, all the rules and regulations are written completely in the favor of the one who has voluntarily enslaved themselves. What's happening here is that the officials, the men of Judah, have flipped this on the head on its head, and they only want slavery insofar as it benefits themselves. And when it becomes a liability, then they'll do without. You see, this was a covenant of
0: convenience. Beware. Examine your heart. How
1: often have your promises to God been matters, simply, not really of heartfelt devotion and conviction and resolve, but simply a matter of convenience? How often has your repentance been demonstrated not to be true repentance, but it's just convenient for my well-being, at least to appear repentant at this point? And whenever the covenant's no longer convenient, well, then you break it. Once the Babylonians, they enter into this covenant while they're under siege, the Babylonians withdraw, we'd like our slaves back. But whenever God brings them back, you know the slaves aren't going to be fooled again. And if they're not, how much more God? When He brings them back, the city will be taken and it will be burnt. It will be left to desolation without inhabitant. So can you see in light of this, the devastating word that every one of us has to face is that we are every one of us in Adam, covenant breakers. God was and is do all. And we think only of ourselves. And if and when we do obey, it's really a matter of convenience more so than heartfelt love and devotion to God. Because of this covenant breaking, God's curse hangs over every one of us. Spiritually dead, we are dying until we die to enter eternal death. That's the curse that abides over us in Adam. The covenant curse that abides over us. But whenever God pronounced the curses, following man's disobedience, there was a curse in God's cursing that would ultimately prove a blessing. God cursed the serpent saying, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3, 14-15. We broke covenant. We deserve nothing but to be cursed. And yet God, in this, graciously enters into covenant, wherein... He will be cursed for our sins. The Son of God would take on flesh as the seed of the woman. And His heel would be bruised in crushing the serpent's head. Let's go back to that promise God made to Abraham when he walks through the carcasses. Essentially saying over my rent body all these promises to make of you a great people and to give you a place and to bless you and be your god over my rent body may this be so and he takes on flesh the son of god the second person of the trinity and it is as though like hebrews tells us the flesh His flesh was like a rent curtain. The rent curtain of the temple. His torn flesh. By it we enter into the holy place. And find a throne of grace. Because we have broken covenant. God keeps covenant in judgment. Because we have broken covenant. God keeps covenant in our salvation. And the way He keeps covenant in our salvation, is by keeping covenant in judgment. The original terms of man's covenant relationship
0: were never thrown aside. Everything we failed to do, Christ did in our place. We're saved according to
1: the covenant of works. They're just not our own works. And the judgment that necessarily should fall on humanity because of covenant breaking,
0: he kept in our place. Galatians three, thirteen through fourteen.
1: Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Jesus was cursed so that the blessing of Abraham might fall on you. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And this is why because of Jesus' covenant keeping and suffering for our covenant breaking. This is why he comes to us not like some weak, spineless, covenant breaking Zedekiah.
0: His emancipation proclamation is never revoked. Luke 4, again.
1: The one Isaiah wrote of is the Messiah, Hebrew, the Christ. Greek, the anointed one, English. Meaning he's the one that the Spirit of God is upon. Three offices were anointed into the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus comes as the supremely ultimate anointed one. And as a prophet, he proclaims, The year of Yahweh's favor, liberty. And that proclamation comes with absolute kingly authority. And the grounds upon which that authoritative kingly declaration is made by the prophet is that as our great high priest, he offered up the sacrifice of himself bearing the curse for our covenant breaking that we might enter into fellowship and communion with the triune God and blessedness. In the new covenant established by his blood,
0: praise be to his name. Let's pray, Holy Father. How great your steadfast, unfailing covenant love to undeserving
1: sinners. What wealth and abundance we have. That we who deserve nothing but to be considered covenantally in Adam have been given a new covenant head in Christ. Who is all of our righteousness and who bore our curse. That in him we might have all the blessings promised to Abraham. Praise be to your name. And Father, our great hope, we cry out. May we keep covenant. May we not profane your name. May we not blaspheme your name. May we honor and glorify you with our lives. And, and we pray and we cry this out. And we cry it out in faith and confidence. Not in of ourselves, but we ask it in the name of
0: Jesus. Knowing our hope of keeping Is our confidence that you will keep us. In Christ's name. Amen.